You're listening to the City Church Downtown Podcast. Now here's Doug Robbins. Well, how are we doing today, City Tribe? Good, good to see you guys. Well, you know, I want to welcome those of you that are worshiping online as well as those of you in the video cafe. A small shout out to the balcony. How are we doing today, balcony? Pretty good. Well, good to see you guys. We're going to talk about adulting today. And a few years ago, I was surprised when I saw a downtown blog called The Rivard Report do an article on our church, and the title of the article was Where Millennials Worship in San Antonio, and I was a little surprised that someone would view our church that way, and then last year we did this series of teachings called Generations, and what we did during that series was I did this kind of anecdotal raise of hands survey of all the different generations. I put the ages and the years on the the screen, and what blew me away was just how many of you millennials are here. You people are taking, you know, you were by far the majority of our church if you're in the millennial generation. I was also very surprised at how many Gen Z people we have here as well, even the younger generation, and I hear a lot of people these days griping about the different generations, but I'm actually encouraged by the younger generations who are part of our church because you want to grow, you want to learn, you want to mature, and I'm also very excited about the older generations represented here, like me, because so many of our older generations are all about empowering the young and learning from the young as well as giving uh, knowledge as well. So, Um, I'm thankful for those things. Now, the term adulting came from Twitter in 2008. So let's go back to the origins of it. The first tweet was from a guy named Unholy Twerp, who he said he grew up in a town of 2000 and adulted 10 years in New York City. Same values, keeping the job, feeding the family, educating the kids, buying the stuff. That was the first time that the term adulting was used. Now, we learn more about adulting from Rachel Weinstein, who gives us a definition of adulting. She actually has what's called the adulting school in Portland, Maine. Can you imagine a school where you learn to adult? That's pretty cool. But look at the definition. It's being able to take care of those mundane adult responsibilities, like keeping your bills organized, changing the oil in your car, and creating a budget. And Rachel even has an adulting test on her website that we'll post for you later on today. If you want to take a test and see how much of an adult you are, you can go through this little online survey. And so I took the little test and it told me I have great potential to become an adult. So (laughs) how many of you know that your age doesn't decide how mature an adult that you are? Um, if you, know, if you want to learn how to become an adult, well, what do most of us do? We Google it, don't we, to figure out how to be an adult. So when I Googled it, I found these responses of people who said, I knew I was adult when I, I knew this certain truth in life. Let me read you some of these uh, little bits of wisdom that people got from experience. One of them was related to dating. It says, you cannot make someone love you. All you can do is stalk them and hope that they panic and give in. said the stalker. Okay. Another one was, uh, one good turn gets most of the blankets that that's worked in my marriage for many years. You know, you just roll over and the blanket, uh, comes to you. Uh, another one related to dating said, exes are like fungus. They just keep coming back. Okay. How many of you have experienced that X? Okay. Uh, don't, don't say anything if you're sitting next to your ex. Okay. But, uh, here was one. We're all responsible for what we do unless we're celebrities. We know that's true. But my favorite one was this last one. We're all mature until someone brings out the bubble wrap. 
Isn't that the truth, right? I love popping those little, those little things. So in preparation for this talk, I read all kinds of Bible verses about spiritual adulting. And one of them was, of course, Hebrews 6.1, where the author said, let us stop going over the basic teachings about Christ again and again. Let us go on instead and become mature in our understanding. And then if you go over to 1 Corinthians, you see in chapter 13, verse 11, Paul says, when I was a child, I spoke and thought and reasoned as a child. But when I grew up, I put away childish things. And so these are great verses that motivate us towards wanting to become spiritual adults. But what areas of our lives do we deal with in order to become spiritual adults? So I, I went to, in order to answer this question for myself, I went to our youth pastor, Robbie. I said, hey, man, what are people dealing with who are teenagers and 20-somethings, young adults and all that? And he said, uh, by far, what people are dealing with is uh, dealing with and handling their money. And after Robbie told me that, I was doing some personal Bible study, and I ran across Luke chapter 8, verse 14. And look at what it says. Jesus is telling the story of the sower who was planting seeds. And it says, the seeds that fell among the thorns represent those people who hear the message, but all too quickly, the message is crowded out by the cares and what? Riches. Riches, that's our money, and pleasures of this life. And so they never grow into maturity. So there is this connection between our maturity and how we manage our resources, our money. So today I want to break down a parable that Jesus teaches called the parable of the talents. Now, what you got to understand if you're new to Bible reading, that talents has nothing to do with like talents you have, like juggling or, you know, parkour or whatever, you know, it's just like, uh, but talents is actually money is what it is. So we're going to be spiritual adults together, and we're going to read a whole 14 verses. Do we think we can do that? So here we go, Matthew chapter 25, verse 14. It says, talk about the kingdom of God, and Jesus says, for it, the kingdom, is just like a man about to go on a journey. He called his own servants and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two talents, to another one talent, depending on each one's ability. Then he went on a journey, and immediately the man who had received ta uh, five talents put them to work and earned five more. In the same way, the man with two earned two more. But the man who had received one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five talents approached and presented five more talents and said, Master, you gave me five talents. See, I've earned five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful with only a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Share your master's joy. Keep your place there just for a minute. That's what this is all about, is experiencing the joy of the master when you get your resources in order and you're able to be generous. Look at the next verse. The man with two talents also approached. He said, Master, you gave me two talents. See, I've earned two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over only a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Share, here it is again, your master's joy. The man who had received one talent also approached and said, Master, I know you. You're a harsh man. Now, let me stop there just for a minute. 
I think we all are astute enough to know that the master in the story represents God, doesn't it? And we see this is a guy who thinks God is harsh. He's got a wrong view of the master. And that will mess up every spiritual decision you make if you have a wrong view of the master and think he's harsh. But look at the next part. He says, you're a harsh man reaping where you haven't sown and gathering where you haven't scattered seed. And look at the next part. He says, so I was afraid. And every decision you make financially, if it's affected by fear, you will make a poor decision if you make decisions based on fear. He said, I was afraid, so I went off and I hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what's yours. And his master replied to him, the guy who was filled with fear, the guy that thought he was harsh. He says, you evil, lazy servant. If you knew that I reap where I haven't sown and gathered where I haven't scattered, then you should have deposited my money with the bankers and I would have received my money back with interest when I returned. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has 10 talents. See what's going on there? This is why some people um, who have a lot tend to get more and those who have very little sometimes lose it. There are injustices related to that too, but oftentimes people who know what they're doing with their resources know how to manage it. They receive more and more. But here's what we all know when we come to terms with being spiritual adults. We know this one transforming idea, and that is that God is the owner, I am the steward, and I'm accountable. Can you say that with me out loud? You ready? Here we go. God is the owner, I'm the steward, and I'm accountable. Let's try it one more time. Balcony, you guys got a show out today. Ready? Here we go. God is the owner, I'm the steward, and I'm accountable. So what we're going to do in the rest of our time together is break down three thoughts within that one sentence. Number one, God is the owner. If you go back to verse 14, he called his servants and entrusted whose possessions? His possessions to them. And I've learned some of this from pastor and author Robert Morris. I highly recommend that you listen to all his online sermons and read all of his books. And what he'll tell you is if you want to come to terms with the truth um, that, that I'm not the owner, that's when you'll become a spiritual adult. But look, it's, it's all throughout the Bible. If you go back to Psalm chapter 24, verse 1, it says, the earth and everything in it, the, the world and all its inhabitants belong to the Lord. All the inhabitants, all, all the inhabitants of the world belong to the Lord. Go to 1 Corinthians 10, 26. The earth is the Lord and all that is in it. That means everything that you and I possess currently is actually the Lord's. You know, your pets, your dog, your cat, it's the Lord's. You know, some of you guys are like, I wish the Lord would take my wife's cat, you know. Um, but but it, those animals belong to the Lord. Your house was made out of materials that are the Lord's. The wood framing in your house was made from God's trees. If you're a person that likes to wear pearls, you know, ladies, every one of those pearls came from one of God's oysters that got agitated with, you know, with some sand in its mouth or whatever, right? Everything you and I have belongs to the Lord. It's kind of like the lesson that my teenager has to learn from time to time. I got this teenager and he keeps these tarantulas in his room, right? And it's like in my house. He keeps these spiders 
in my house. And I'm kind of a lenient dad, so I let him keep the tarantulas in his room. But who knows what my son would keep in his room if I didn't put up boundaries, right? I mean, I might, walk, I might come home to a wildebeest in his room or, you know, a king cobra or some whack kind of animal. But he knows because I've told him, look, dude, you can keep, you know, what I approve in the room because he says, it's my room, dad. I'm like, no, it's my room. That room is in my house. And you're just in that room for a time, right? Because I'm going to be an empty nester someday. And, and I look forward to that day because I'm going to clean that room. I'm going to do awesome stuff with that room when I'm an empty nester. How many of you are on board with that? Those who parents of my Okay, so, so look, look at this. Um, I got these friends, one day, speaking of empty nesters, I had these friends that were about to be, become empty nesters. And I said, hey, man, what are you going to do when all your kids are gone? You know what they said? We're going to get blinds. <laughs> I thought that was a great answer. You know, next week we're going to talk about adult sex. So make sure and bring the kids for that one uh, for all of you who have really good blinds uh, in your house. But um, so my son can only keep in his room what I tell him, this is my house. Now, speaking of my house, one day I went down to the San Antonio Conservation Society, and that's where you learn about the historicity of buildings. So I went down there to find out about our old house because our house is historic. It's like over 100 years old. It's 122 years old right now. So I got this file and it had all the names of all the people in the years that they lived in our home. And it gave me a sense of history. And it gave me the sense of, of the, this truth that, look, my name is on a piece of paper somewhere connected to that house. But there have been many, many people that have lived in my house before I lived there. And there will be many people living there after I die. Man, I'm just passing through. And it gave me a sense of how broad history is and how short these lifetimes are. My house, your house, all the materials that they're made of is the Lord's. And we're moving into maturity when we understand that it's his. Everything is his. But look at number two. I'm the steward. Now, some of you who have gone on cruises know about stewards, right? They take your suitcase when you're about to get on the boat, right? And they're not like getting in your suitcase and trying on all your outfits and everything like that. That's a little creepy. But they're just taking care of your suitcase, and then they're going to put it in your cabin when you get to your cabin. And let me give you a definition of a steward. It's someone who protects or is responsible for money or property of another person. A person whose job is to manage the land, property of another person. So the stewards in Matthew 25 that we're studying today were given talents, which we know as money. And one talent was 10,000 denarii, which was a denomination of money in Jesus' day. 10,000 denarii was a lifetime of wages. So if you calculate it today, the average San Antonian makes somewhere around $25,000 per year. I understand a lot of you make more and a lot of you make, you know, some make less. But um, if you calculate that out over 33 years in the workforce, it comes out to about $850,000. So don't feel sorry for the guy that got one talent. He had a lifetime's worth of money with which to do something with. And he's corrected here because he didn't do anything with it. Um, he could have at least put it in an interest-bearing account to make a little bit of money. And here's where I want to challenge some of you. Because in our city, there are a lot of people, some of you, 
who grew up in a poverty mindset. Poverty is not what you have or what you don't have. It's a way of thinking. And some of you have grown up with scarcity thinking, a poverty mindset, and money was something to be hoarded, not to be invested. See? And so what I'm asking you to consider doing is break out of that. You don't have to stay in that. Invest that money. Invest it in stocks or bonds or invest in real estate. Or if you're not into that or if you don't have very much and you want to start in micro-investing, start by grabbing one of those little apps like Acorn where it invests the extra change on a transaction. If you read the reviews on that, don't want to do that. I'm not claiming to be a financial advisor or trying to get you to do any certain type of investment. I just want you to do something, right? At least put the money in an interest-bearing account in the bank, see? But don't just sit on God's money that's currently in your care. And if you really want to get serious about it, we have a tribe called Financial Peace. It's based on the Dave Ramsey curriculum. And I called John Scully and his wife, Maddie, who lead that class. And they said that if enough of you want to sign up for Financial Peace, they will start a class uh, very soon downtown here. So here's what you do if you want to really get your finances wrangled. You grab one of the Connect cards. They're in seats. They're at the giving stations. And you fill out a Connect card, fill out all your information, and at the bottom put, I want financial peace. And we will get you into that course. We'll start it down here. But one of the first steps that you'll take in Dave Ramsey or any plan is you have to get your arms around where your money's going. And the person that does that in our household is my wife. I call her the budget queen. And she's going to show you a few simple tools that you can use in order to get your resources intact. So would you give a rowdy and warm welcome to my lady, Jeannie Robbins. Hey, guys. Uh, Growing up, my parents were good to teach me about money management, and they gave me three small goals. First thing was tithe 10% no matter what. Next was save 50%, and when you're a kid, that's doable. Uh, The 40% that was left was mine to spend and plan for things that I wanted to buy. So uh, I used that system. I kept using it all the way through college. And you may not know this, but Doug and I met in college, and we got married right out of college at the crisp age of 22. Um, So our first full-on adulting experience was when we got married and moved to Texas. So you can see, that could have been a total recipe for disaster. But I will say, 31 years ago, when we got married, the best gift, hands down, that we got was a book on money management. And in our first three and a half years of marriage, I read it and dealt with it three times. I so wanted to get us started on the right foot financially. Now today, uh, Doug is bringing you kind of the spiritual insights about finances, and I am working through some practical tips that you can use. But what's the number one issue that married couples fight about? Money. And it's also the second. It's the second in leading causes of divorce. So it's kind of dangerous, and we just want to give you some practical tips today. So have you ever wondered maybe what are some percentages that I should keep in mind as I try to budget for housing, for travel, for food, and things like that? I brought a picture from Financial Peace that I wanted to show you because they're the experts and they deal with people day in and day out, helping people with their finances. And they offer some wise percentages as a strategy to help you control money so that it doesn't control you. Now you notice on here that 
Uh, housing is definitely the biggest one with 25 to 35%. Transportation and food are each 10 to 15% of your budget. And there are lots of other categories here to show, just so you don't forget anything. Um, so now, uh, I will say that Doug and I use um, these percentages. We've used them for years, and we put it into kind of like a simple uh, budget plan, a housing, household budget plan. So we are going to share that with you today. We've shared it with probably hundreds of people over the years. Uh, and I just want to kind of talk you through it. Now, if glancing at a spreadsheet is going to make you sweat, just take a breath, because I'm going to walk you through it. It's really pretty simple. Um, it's important, I'm sure, that you know to deal with your finances. And you, you probably have heard the phrase that if you fail to plan, you're planning to fail. So we're just going to put eyes on this. I'm going to ask that you download this. We're going to put it online today. Um, you're going to put in all of your monthly amounts. And then you're going to open your eyes to see where you're going to assign your money. Um, if you want money for new tires and you don't have it, is it because you've eaten out for the last, you know, four times in the last week and for the last two months you've been doing the same kind of trend? Or maybe you need a gift for your cousin and you don't even like that cousin anyway. Don't do what a lot of people do and throw down a credit card to pay for a gift. Because you may not realize this, but people spend 15% more on a card over cash. So it's important for you to kind of know where your money's going. Now the credit card will give you the restaurant dinners, it will give you the tires, it will give you the gift for your cousin, but it could saddle you a dangerous debt, and we don't want that. So you want to get a plan, you want to enter your monthly net income at the bottom here, and you want to take your tithe off the gross at the top, and then you're going to assign where all your money is going to go. Now, Doug and I use kind of a combination of cash and online payments. Probably a lot of you do. Um, and I wanted to show you just some practical ways that we organize our money. I went to Office Depot, and I got plastic binder tabs. And I just cut them out to be the same size as dollar bills. And for the week, I get the money that I need for that week, and I put them in these little, behind these little tabs, and I just carry them with me. So I'm not carrying a lot of cash, but I have enough for what I'm anticipating using in my categories. Um, of course, and then we use online budget, um, or online payments. My friend Denise goes to container store. She uses these cute little plastic envelopes. Those work great. And you may not know this, but crystal light jars, which are fun for storing all kinds of things, actually fit dollar bills perfectly. It's not a real spiritual thought today, but it's really practical, so I wanted to share that with you. So you take from your organizers, take it when you need to go shop in those categories, and that way it works out. Now, at the end of the month, I realize it's not going to work out perfectly evenly. So if you need to borrow $4 from gifts to pay for a haircut, I get that. But you're just trying to assign where your money's going and watch it go out, and that really helps a lot. Now, any extra that you have, you're going to use to pay off debt, or you're going to start saving for those tires. Now, managing your money is definitely adulting, and if your eyes are kind of starting to glaze over with my little spreadsheet, you can tune back in. I'm just going to tell you to download it. It's available online, and it's just going to take you a step further in wrangling your income. Now, Doug and I love you, and we want the best for you, and I hope this just practical information part has been helpful in um, maybe just inspiring you to manage your money so your money doesn't manage you. Thanks, guys. She's so hot when she talks about spreadsheets, isn't she? <laughs> the woman that gives me my cash allowance every week, and I better be for staying within it. <laughs> so remember, we've learned that God's the owner, I'm the steward, and the last one is, and I'm accountable. <laughs> I'm accountable to her, and I'm accountable to God. 
right? But look at Matthew 25, 19. Jesus said, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts. And here's what is chilling to me, is that someday God is going to hold me accountable and you accountable for the way that we use our resources. He's going to settle accounts. And I think what we all want to hear is in Matthew 25, verse 21 in the story where the master says, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I put you in charge of many things. Share your master's joy. That's the point of this, isn't it? Is that you experience the joy of the master when your resources are in order and when you're able to be generous and see how God uses your generous gifts to other people because you've managed his money well. You know, over the years, a lot of people have used that passage or that thought, well done, good and faithful servant, to apply to a lot of different things. Like some people say, well, someday I'll get there, and if I lived a good moral life, he'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. Or if I preached sermons or volunteered at church or gave to the poor, he'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. But it's really not about any of those things. It's about people who managed their money well. Those are the ones that he says to them, well done, good and faithful servant. And I would add to this that a starting point for managing and being stewards of God's resources is tithing. It's tithing. That's the starting point. We get this from Malachi chapter 3, verse 10, where the prophet says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse in the New Testament. It's called the household of faith, that there may be food in my house. And this is the only thing where God says, test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will be room enough to store it. And here's what I hear from time to time. Okay, number one, I always tell those of you that are not believers, don't buy into God or any of this, that if you don't believe in this, you don't have to, you know, we're, we're not trying to make you uncomfortable or make you feel like we're just after your money. But skeptical Christians, we say, hey, if you don't buy into what we're doing here, we say tithe another church because our heart is not to get people's money. Our heart here is to see you experience God. That's really what we want you to do is experience the Lord. And what I hear some believers saying is that, well, that tithing stuff, that's new, that's Old Testament. See, Doug, you just read from Malachi. That's the last book in the Old Testament. So we're under the new covenant. We're under the New Testament. So we don't have to do that Old Testament stuff. That's the way a lot of people think. And I agree, we are under the new covenant. And I'm glad we are. I'd way rather be under grace than try and fulfill all those Levitical laws in the Old Testament Torah, right? But here's what you got to understand about tithing is that tithing was a principle before the law ever took place in the Old Testament Torah. It was when uh, a tithe was given to Melchizedek, and some scholars even believe Melchizedek could have been uh, Jesus at that time. Um, then tithing was enacted during the law, and then Jesus endorsed it in Matthew 23 in the New Testament. So tithing is New Testament because tithing is an eternal principle. The same people who would say that tithing is just for the Old Testament days wouldn't say, well, now I'm under the new covenant, so I can commit adultery, I can steal, and I can commit murder. See, stealing, murder, adultery, those are old covenant, aren't they? But what we all understand is that tithing is an eternal principle, just like thou shalt not steal. 
it goes throughout all the ages. And one of the things that I really love about tithing is it shows God's heart for equality and the poor. Because if God just gave an amount that people were to give, if he just said, hey, everybody's supposed to give $1,000, that would give an unfair advantage to the rich. But he says, no, it's a percentage. It's a tenth. It's a tithe. That way, it's an equal sacrifice for everyone. If you make $500, you tithe 50 bucks. If you make 50 bucks, you tithe $5, right? It's equal for all of us, and everyone can participate. And that's how we experience the master's joy. And, you know, one of the things that we're seeing all over our church are people who are putting God to the test and seeing that he's legit and for real when it comes to the tithe. In fact, Humby was telling me the story about a woman in our church who she made $300. And how much would her tithe be? Not a, quick, not a trick question. 30 bucks, right? Well, $30 is what she was going to spend to buy school supplies for her kids. Now, of course, nobody at the church would say, oh, don't buy, buy school supplies for your kids. But she just had a prompting and conviction in her own heart. We're not, like, policing this, by the way, right? Um, she just had a conviction in her, own, in her own heart. She's like, hey, I need to be faithful to what the Lord says to tithe as a first fruit. And she did that. She donated the 30 bucks, And then the same day, a Christian friend came to her and said, God just prompted my heart to buy the school supplies for your kids, all of them. In addition, we're going to buy school uniforms for your kids that they need. In addition to that, we're going to buy a supply of snacks that are approved for your kids to take to school. Isn't that cool how God works by prompting another believer and taking care of those needs? I've got another friend here in, our, here in our church, and he went through a divorce a couple of years ago, and so he was going through a lot of change in his life. He had to change houses, you know, move to a new house. Um, he had to start managing his own money because his wife wasn't there to do it. She was kind of the more accounting-type person in their relationship, and so as he started managing his own resources, he made a decision, I'm going to for sure tithe. It's the first thing that I'm going to do. And so he started tithing, but what he realized was that in all the upheaval of all the change in his life, he was double tithing. He didn't realize he was given more. He was like, not just 10%, he was like 20%. And what dawned on him was it wasn't hurting his quality of life. I mean, he, it was just his new normal. And so he thought, that's good. And he, what he told me was, he's like, it's like the Lord was saying to me, my son, you find your security in a number in a bank account, but my son, I want you to find your security in me. It's like the Lord was saying that to him. And so everything was good with that double tithe until house tax appraisals come out. How many of you know about house tax appraisals? Like your house gets appraised at this high number. Well, you know how much my friend's mortgage went up? $500 a month. 500 a month. That is stressful for, for, for any of us in our home budget, isn't it? And he was a good steward. You know, good stewards, they fight that stuff, right? Good stewards, like when they need to cut the cable or renegotiate the insurance and all that. And he went down to the tax office, tax appraisal office, and he fought that like you should. By the way, 
I remember the first time I went to fight my tax appraisal, I went in there with like guns a-blazing, ready to argue, ready to fight, ready to cuss someone out if I need to, right? I went in there, and you know what happened? Two people in the tax appraisal office were like, hi, Pastor Doug. I'm like, dang it, you people are everywhere. I can't sit anywhere. You guys are all watching me all the time. Leave me alone. <laughs> so anyways, my friend, he, he did all the stuff that good stewards do. You know, he fought his tax appraiser and, uh, and all of that. And uh, God just kept telling him, you trust me and you keep giving what I've asked you to give. And about that time, another friend, who's one of my friends and one of his friends, decided to include him in a real estate investment. And you know how much that investment brought in every month? You already know. $500. $500. Because God says, you test me on this stuff. And you see, if I don't open the windows of heaven and provide for you, and I'm telling you, my friend and the other friend that helped him with the real estate investment thing, they're crazy people. And I'll tell you why. Because these guys, if God tells them to do something, they do it. If God told them to empty their bank accounts, I believe these men would do it. They're, that, that they're, they're nutty. And I'm trying to be more like nutty like them. But I'm telling you, God wants a church full of crazy people <laughs> who will give to the things that he cares about. And you know why? Because the real treasure in this whole thing is not numbers in some account somewhere, but it's people. And you know, my friend that helped my other friend with the real estate investment, how do you think he feels when he knows that God was working through him for another brother that he loves? How do you think some people in this church feel when they tithe and they experience God's provision and then uh, they're able to give to someone else in need and help? because of the true treasures are people. And you know, there's a group of people who believe in what's called a prosperity gospel. And really what they're doing is they're telling people to give to get, but we go one step further. We wanna give to get so we can give more to people what really matters to God, right? We're not all about just gathering more stuff for ourselves, but we wanna give to get to give some more to see people changed by the power of the gospel. Now, here's what I want you to understand is that someone here was brought here today to this room or watching on, on a screen somewhere because God wants love relationship with you. And some of you have been led to believe that donating to a church or nonprofit will earn you brownie points with God to earn you love relationship with him. But he would say, no, that's not it at all. He would say, I gave everything, even my very life on a cross so that you could come to a relationship with me. That's the gospel. That's what it's about. And if you would like love relationship with God today through Jesus Christ, I would love to pray with you about that. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. And if you would like to begin a relationship with God, you might just say something to him like this. Look, God, I know I've sinned and screwed some stuff up, but in this moment right now, I choose to believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay the penalty for my sin. And God, I welcome you into my life. As we continue in prayer, there are some of us who are believers that want to pray spiritual adulting prayers related to our money. 
and the first prayer goes something like this, just in your own heart, in your own words to God, say something to him like this, God, I want to get my arms around my money. I'm going to get into that financial piece. I'm going to download budget. I'm going to like do something. I'm going to quit just sitting here and letting financial things just happen to me, but I'm going to get intentional and get my arms around my money and my resources. And others are making a commitment, God, I'm going to begin by faith, testing you by tithing. And others of us want to mature even more and grow in this grace of giving. God, we want to be generous people to take the next step in generosity beyond where we're at now. And so, God, we know that you've given your life for us. And we, in turn, want to give whatever is asked of us. And we pray all these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Everyone said, amen. Thanks for listening. For more information, visit citychurchdowntown.com.